So turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4, where we see the apostles, who not that much earlier than this were hiding during the arrest and the conviction, and then, of course, the death of Jesus. Now we're coming out very boldly and proclaiming the name of Jesus, for which they said they would not recant, that they would not stop. And now they're also duplicating the ministry of Jesus and healing the sick and raising the dead. So a great miracle took place here. If you read a little further before this verse, or you read from the beginning, chapter 4, verse 1. But I'm going to begin reading at chapter 4, verse 8. Because they're called into question about this miracle of healing. And Peter responds in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, and God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Now here it is in verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name. That's the theme of that verse there, verse 12. The title of this message is Jesus' name above all names. Not terribly original, but it's fitting. Jesus' name above all names. Now, yesterday, because of the birth of my grandson, that's number 12, by the way, grandchildren, we have with us our granddaughter, four years old. And I promised her during dinner... And I would tell her a bedtime story. I used to do this with my kids when they were little. I used to tell them bedtime stories, but not one you would read or get from a book. I would just make it up as I go along. But there was always a moral in the story. So she kept whispering in my ear about the story. And we finally made it up to the second floor and sat in my oversized chair. And there she was wedged in between me and the other arm rail. Put the blanket on us and snuggled up. And I told her this story that I want to tell you. Obviously, it's a child story. I told you the story of the Christmas tree that had no lights. And this was a story I made up many years ago for my own children. I would tell them bedtime stories. And so once upon a time, there was a Christmas tree that was in a field with all the rest of the Christmas trees. But unlike the other Christmas trees that had so many branches and were so broad and tall and beautiful looking to the eye, this Christmas tree didn't have very many branches wasn't too tall, and everybody just laughed at it and made fun of it, and no one wanted it. So they bought all the good trees, uh, good-looking trees. Finally, one day, an old man comes along. He lived alone, and he looked at that tree, and he had compassion on it. He said, I'm going to take this tree home to my house. And it still was not very pretty. It was not very tall. It didn't have many branches. And he put it in his house, and because he was poor, he didn't have anything to decorate the tree with. So he had this little dinner party for his family and his friends. And when they came over, they looked at his tree and they laughed at it. How ugly it was and no good that it was. Well, after the family and the friends left, the man got down and he prayed. And he prayed to Jesus and he told Jesus that he really loved this tree. And he told the Lord that he would just wish that God would just touch this tree. 
Then he drifted off into sleep. Well, when he woke up in the morning, here the tree was all full. It had grown somewhat, both this way and this way, and it had all these beautiful decorations on it, the lights and the Christmas balls and all of that. And at the top of the tree was this great big star. Well, he invited his friends and family over again, and now they started coming in one by one, one by one, not even invited, just knocking on the door and asking, could they come in and see the Christmas tree? And the tree just kept on growing, and it kept on growing this way, and it kept on growing that way, and it was getting brighter and brighter and brighter. Now, I told my granddaughter that there's a lesson there. I said, what happened to this Christmas tree? Well, of course, she didn't really know. So I said, well, see, the old man prayed, and God touched it, and that whatever God touches... And then I put my finger on her. So whatever God touches is beautiful. And he doesn't make you beautiful so much on the outside as much as he makes you beautiful on the inside. And I told this four-year-old girl, I said, now, when people, when they say something like, you're not good looking or you're ugly or they don't like you, well, it doesn't matter. Because we have on the inside the beauty of God. Amen. Of course, she had a lot of questions. And this morning when we got up, I said I promised her another story tonight, but this will be an actual poem that my dad used to read to me every Christmas Eve. I asked her, I said, did you remember about the Christmas tree? And she said, yeah, Pop. She says, you know, God makes everybody beautiful when God touches you. Now, we have a song that goes along those lines, something beautiful, something new and all that, something good. And that's what Jesus does to our lives when God touches you. It doesn't matter that the world sees it or they don't see it. That really doesn't matter. What matters is that you know it. Amen. You are the Christmas tree that had no lights. That's the name of the story. It's copyrighted. Don't pass it out and don't repeat it to anybody without written permission from the author. But that was a little story I made up many years ago for my kids. And there's other ones too. And, you know, they change over the years as I'm talking to my grandchildren now. When God touches our lives, he makes something beautiful out of something that ordinarily wasn't all that beautiful. He touches our lives and he selects us out of the nursery or whatever you want to call it. And ordinarily, we're not the most imposing tree in the nursery. But with the little tree over there that had no lights or whose lights went out, whatever. And God touches us through Jesus Christ. But every Christmas, I'm supposing that it happens with you as well. Memories come back to me of me being her age. Like I said, my dad reading this story to me every Christmas Eve. And I would insist that he would read it. Remind him if he forgot as I got older. And sometimes I'd make him read it twice. And I could still hear his voice reading to me on Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas. My dad was not a religious man. We didn't hear much of anything from the Bible. But all these memories come back. And I remember being little. And then I remembered the words of Jesus. Except ye be converted. And become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's no way. And though we're not to be childish, we are to become, through our conversion, is to be childlike. We receive the word of God that we're having here today, or rather it bears fruit for us to be beautiful, in reality be beautiful, if it falls on the ground that's ready and prepared for it. Now, one of the memories that I have of Christmas is a little advertisement that they ran on television. This is before I was saved. And this is how, by the way, at least when I examine my own life, how when you look back, you can see God leading you by little installments, finally up to the cross and the empty tomb and the word of God. But at the time, I had no knowledge of the Bible. They would run this little, well, I'll call it a commercial. It wasn't selling anything. And I was enamored, I really was, with this poem. I want to read it to you. 
Many of you are familiar with it. It was actually part of a series of sermons given by the uh, pastor, Dr. James Allen Francis. And it goes like this. Speaking of Jesus, here is a man who was born in an obscure village as the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. Another betrayed him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon the cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the center of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that were ever built, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon the earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. And how true that is. But you see, so many of us here, even before we were born again and came to Jesus, so many of us here, if not everybody here, have some background in Christianity. So it's a bit easy for us to sing about Jesus, pray to Jesus, my little story there. It's so easy for us to do these things sometimes without thinking. But when you really take time, by way of analogy, when you step back a bit and you really see what it is that the scriptures say about Jesus, it's a bit startling. For instance, I just want to take his beginning, Jesus, and the end of his earthly life, I mean, when he was crucified, and just look at this unusual gift from God and marvel at the way that God has designed it. And we just finished singing and worshiping and shouting and clapping and all those things that most churches today usually do. But when we examine the statements made about him, this is when, at least in my mind, it gets very, very interesting. First of all, Jesus, as we know, according to the record, and I don't mean the biblical record for the moment, I mean according to the record, mainly Jewish genealogical records, was an illegitimate child. It's written that the genealogical table dating before 70 AD, Jesus is listed as, quote, the bastard of a wedded wife. And we may suppose that the Holy Spirit moved upon Matthew to discuss the genealogy, but also the record, but also to mention that he was born of the Holy Spirit. But let's just listen and think about this. Later, rabbis just bluntly called him the son of an adulteress. They also claim to know the unknown father's name, which is Panthera. Now, this is in the historical record, again, mainly Jewish record. Panthera was a Roman soldier. And so, as the story goes, according to Jewish genealogical records, they go through great lengths, and Celsus, one of the great historians, or a historian at least, has about 160 references of what we would call gossip 
160 references of the relationship between this Roman soldier, Panthera, and whom we know as the Virgin Mary. So the record reflects that Jesus, to go to the record itself, is a bastard child, an illegitimate child. So let's look at this first. And so we have a young woman here in the youth group, and we find out that she's pregnant. She has a record of being a very godly teenager, very godly, very devout, very pious. And she's engaged, which in biblical times, in biblical terms, once you're engaged, you were considered to be a wife. The angels tell Joseph, don't be afraid to take your wife. But they weren't actually, it wasn't consummated sexually. It wasn't also consummated as far as him taking the bride to his home and all that, that we do to this day. Nevertheless, an engaged woman was called the wife of. Here we have Jesus in the record, not the biblical record, the Jewish record as Jesus ben Penthera, Jesus the son of Penthera. Now, we have this young girl in the youth group, an astounding record for piety, being devout, and all of this, and she's pregnant. And at this point, we would say she's obviously pregnant. But her story keeps saying that I have never known a man. Now think about it. Who's going to believe this? See, if you look at the Bible from different angles, okay, we already know what the scriptures teach, and we know the truth. But let's look at it from the point of someone who's either searching or is not knowing, which is what agnostic means, or even the atheist which is in a different category altogether. Let's just look at it from their point of view. And you have to admit that a young woman coming along, obviously pregnant, saying that she has never touched a man, she has never known a man, is not believable. And by the way, that's what Joseph believed as well, initially, until angels from God appeared to him and say to him, as I just said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take unto you Mary as your wife. I mean, keep the engagement going and keep the, um, well, the engagement, keep it going. Because what is born of her is born of God, is of the Holy Spirit, all right? or the Holy Ghost, we read in the King James Bible. Now, Joseph knew, at that point he knew, that this was a miracle, a work of God. But again, taking the point of view of an agnostic, or just someone who is examining the record, or just someone who could think rational, this is not rational. This is not how it goes before Jesus was born, and it's not how it's gone since. It's only happened one time in humanity. Now, in nature, we have some anomalies, different things that are similar to this. But in humanity, we don't have that. So think about this. How can you believe anything that an illegitimate child does? And if I can go forth into the ministry of Jesus and those that write about him, then we have to be very suspect of the statements that he makes, the things that he does. I came across a book. I don't know when it was written, but I don't think it was written that long ago. And it was talking about Jesus being the greatest con artist of all time. Now, from this point of view, the agnostic, the rational person, well, it would appear that way. But we have more evidence yet. But we start with the fact that he is thought to be the son of an adulteress, uh, illegitimate child, or what we know as a bastard child, and then when we go to the end, we go to the cross, he dies as a criminal. So again, I'm trying to help you to see it from the point of view of someone who's looking at things rationally. And that brings us to this point here. Not everything in our Bible can be explained rationally. I constantly exhort you to think rationally, be rational, be reasonable. But there are some things that just simply escape both reason and rationale. It's the miraculous. It's the things that God does. But we'll get there in a moment. How can you know this? I've had that question proposed to me on a number of occasions. How can you know? And so 
We start with his birth. It's in the record that he's the son of a Roman soldier. So we know that he's an illegitimate child. And he's been conning people for three years with these supposed feats, what we'll call them magic. And then when we see him at the end, he's dying in between criminals and he's dying as a criminal on one of the most heinous forms of execution or capital punishment ever known to man. So it's not just that he was thrown in jail. He was crucified. Read up on it. I often cover it on Good Friday, the details of crucifixion, but it wasn't pretty, let me just say that. Erwin Linton was a very prominent lawyer who argued cases before the Supreme Court back in his day. He's passed on now. And he wrote a book, and I want to just give you just a little quote from it about the end of Christ dying on the cross. And he writes this. He says, unique among criminal trials is this one in which not the actions, listen, but the identity of the accused is the issue. Not what he did. Right? Two thieves over here, so we know they were crucified for what they did. And all these crucifixions all the way down to the right, to the left, behind, all over the place. All of those people were put to death for what they had done. Jesus was put to death because of who he was and who he claimed to be. And that's unique. I'm not aware of any cases that I've ever read about in history of someone who is put to death in the most heinous way because of who he claimed to be. Usually if someone goes around saying that they're God, we are merciful in maybe even 100% of the cases to put them in some type of mental facility because obviously they're psychotic. But that's exactly what Jesus was going around saying. So Linden wrote again, unique among criminal trials is this one in which not the actions but the identity of the accused is the issue. The criminal charge laid against Christ, the confession or testimony or rather act... In the presence of the court on which he was convicted, the interrogation by the Roman governor and the inscription and proclamation on his cross at the time of execution are all concerned with one of Christ's real identity and dignity. Of which Jesus, if you remember, he'll ask, who is Christ? What say ye of him? Whose son is he? As all things that Jesus said. The uniqueness of his death, the fact that he was crucified because of who he said he was. And then later we'll get to the testimony of the evangelist. But let me go a little further. Frank Morrison was likewise a lawyer. It's interesting to me in all my years of studying that so many lawyers have looked into the record. Well, many of them, not all of them, but many of them looking to prove legally and otherwise as legal scholars and lawyers to prove that Jesus indeed was a con artist. He was a bastard child, conned people all his life, lied about who he was. He was delusional, a lunatic, psychotic, and he dies as a criminal. And yet, listen, all over the world today, all over the world, people are bowing down, raising up their hands. And it's not just unique to this generation, of course. Tens and hundreds of millions of people. Crosses on top of buildings. When that was once a sign of the worst form of execution ever known to man, or at least one of them. But it's certainly at the top of the list. One of the most cruel forms of execution or punishment, the cross. We adorn them around our necks. We wear them as jewelry. We have them all over our buildings and cathedrals built to this man. who was born, so they say, an illegitimate child and dies as a criminal. Frank Morrison was a lawyer. And what I started to say is amazing how many lawyers look into this situation. And so many of them got caught up with the evidence, being unbiased towards the laws of evidence or the rules of evidence and become believers in Christ. Frank Morrison wrote a book years ago called Who Moved the Stone? And he writes in there, Jesus of Nazareth was condemned to death, not upon the statements of his accusers, but upon an admission extorted from him under oath. Pilate says to him, are you the Christ? 
When Jesus responds by, ye say that I am, that's an idiom. It's an idiomatic expression the way we say, when, when somebody asked me, are you the pastor? I said, you said it. That's what he meant. The answer was yes. And that's what got him crucified. Are you God's son? Are you God come in the flesh? And Jesus answered yes. In an idiomatic way. In an idiomatic expression. But he said yes. Yeah, I am. That's what got him crucified. Ordinarily they wouldn't crucify. And Pilate didn't want to. And his wife, Pilate's wife, said, listen, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've suffered many things in a dream today because of him. But he's illegitimate. And a con artist. And a man going around saying he's God. And the unique thing about Christianity, as I've told you before, unlike other religions, that the leader we can disprove or even prove if there's accusations on some portions of their life, their religion will still stand. But Christianity is unique in this respect that if we lose the leader and the founder, the whole thing falls apart because everything was predicated on these type of statements where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. It all hangs on one person's life who was born, as they think, as an illegitimate child, and dies, as they think, as a criminal on the Roman cross. And so we go to Isaiah chapter 53, and it starts out by saying, and who has believed our report? And now we can see a little bit wider definition, explanation, understanding of why this would be so. Who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because of the unique circumstances. And I'm only accenting two. Frank Morrison wasn't the only one. Simon Greenleaf in American history, you can look him up, who succeeded Chief Justice Story in American history, you can look him up. These were two of the imposing legal minds of our country in its early inception. Today, the works of Simon Greenleaf as a legal expert is still used to teach lawyers about cases and laws and what have you. And Simon Greenleaf also wrote a book, The Testimony of the Evangelists, using the very laws that he was writing himself at the time. He was the royal professor of law at Harvard University when Harvard was different. than it is today. And he wrote these things concerning the trial of Jesus. He said, it is not easy to perceive on what ground his conduct could have been defended before any tribunal unless upon that of his superhuman character. From his birth as, again, an illegitimate child to his death, because he went around saying that I am the way, the truth, the life, I am the light of the world, I am all of these things. Before Abraham was, I am. The words of Exodus 3.14, when Moses said, look, they're not going to believe me. Who shall I say has sent me? And the voice came out of the burning bush, say, tell them, I am that I am. The very essence of Jehovah. Someone just wrote to me last night. Social media is a lot of fun if you're not involved with it. They saw the title of my message. Maybe they're watching now. I didn't have the time to answer. But when I put the title down, Jesus above all names, this person put down even above the name of Yahweh, Jehovah. Well, the answer is no, he's not above the name. He is the name. That's what the New Testament declares. uh, This so-called illegitimate child who dies on the Roman cross as a criminal and everything in between gives us the evidence that he is who he is when he said before Abraham was, past tense, I am, that's present tense. 
That's the future, that's the past, that's now, it always was and always will be. I'm God come in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him, but without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But listen, if you wrote the book, or if you were God, would you do it differently than this? When we look all through the Old Testament, we see God always being sanctified in the minds of Israel. Every law, I mean, to touch the ark was death. And they didn't take him out and kill him. God killed him. The Philistines were cursed when they stole the ark. We see everything about this in the Old Testament, you know, it seems as though that's God, see. But then we come into the New Covenant and we find almost a totally different picture. But remember that Jesus became man so that he would be at all points as we are, yet without sin. That's unique, okay? Yet without sin. But he enters the world in a very unique, and that's putting it mildly, a very unique way. Now, I could phrase it this way for you. And then he expects people to believe him, but that's not what he expects. It says of Jesus that he knew before who believed on him and who did not. He says to his 12 apostles there, the disciples, Have not I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? So this uniqueness of this thing, which the Bible calls, and we reiterate, it's called salvation, is still, in my mind, a great mystery. Because that's not the way we would do it. If I were God, I would make such a grand entrance. Believe me. Stepping on planet after planet after planet after planet and stepping on the earth and just saying to all of you, worship me. And you would. But you see, when God made man, he made us unique in this respect. He made a creature, you. Me, that can willfully have relationship with him or rebel against him as Satan did and Satan has and will continue to do until the very end. We haven't reached the end yet. Man has the ability to say, I don't want fellowship with you and we will not have, I will not have you to rule over me or in your case, my case, my Lord and my God. And this mystery between the will and the will of God and the plan of God and all of this, well, it's all part of the story. Jesus' name above all names. By the way, his name is common Yahshua, Joshua. That's it. It's a common name. Joshua. Now, even his name is not unique in Hebrew or Greek. It's just not unique. But yet he has the audacity to say, if you've seen me, you've seen Jehovah. In John 14. If you've seen me, Thomas asked him that question, right? Or Philip, show us the Father. Show us God. And he says, have I been with you so long you've not known me? If you've seen me, you've seen Jehovah. You've seen the Father. It's not hard for me to understand how people have doubts. However, and you should think about this when you go home. Why God selected you and why God selected me to be here today in this room. All over the world where people are worshiping Jesus. is still in my mind a mystery. Because I really don't know. Other than what the scriptures teach me and tell me. In other words... If I didn't have the touch of God, like the little Christmas tree I talked about in the story, my story. If God didn't make my life beautiful, my life would have turned out a whole lot worse. A whole, whole lot worse. And in the end, as a dry tree to be burned. One more. Never had a criminal. And this is very interesting. Remember all that we've said so far, which is just a tiny portion of Jesus' life. And yet, this man who everybody believes, well, not everybody believes that he was born of an illegitimate relationship, a woman who had a relationship, sexual relationship with a Roman soldier, Panthera, 
and who dies just because he says he's God, which ordinarily, again, we would have had mercy on someone like that. So this man needs some help. Let's get him some help. And okay. But no, they crucify him. Because the crowd outside was saying, crucify him. Crucify him. Don't just beat him and don't just put him in jail for a season. Crucify him. Kill him. Torture him. Torment him. Pluck out his beard. Plate his hair, uh, his head rather, with huge thorns. Make him bleed. Make him suffer. Crucify him. And Pilate didn't listen to his wife. Washes his hands. He said, I will wash my hands of this matter. But really, he didn't. Now we come to this place where Emil Camus, who was a theologian, Catholic theologian, lived years ago, wrote these words. Never had a criminal given so much worry after his execution. Above all, never had a crucified man the honor of being guarded by a squad of soldiers. And those were Roman soldiers, not temple guards. All these things are unique. Here you have Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. You haven't got to the resurrection yet. They're afraid they're going to steal the body of a man who has a very doubtful background when you look at it just from the natural circumstances. Very doubtful. But then for you and for me, as God has touched our lives and reached our lives, and then we look at the evidence and we study the scriptures and God illuminates the revelation of the scriptures. And then we tell people... And we give them evidence, by the way, which this is not the message for it, but we give them evidence upon evidence upon evidence. That's intellectual. But we were touched. And so we say, when we've run out of words to explain, that we know that we know that we know that we know. And by the way, there's more evidence for the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and his atoning death on the cross, that he was the sacrifice for our sins and so on and so forth, and the resurrection of Christ. And when we get to the end of this story, the best is yet to come. This is all good. This is all great, but the best is yet to come. Because Jesus isn't finished yet. And there's coming a time, let me just jump ahead. There's coming a time when every eye will see and every ear will hear and they'll know this was no con artist. This was no con artist. You see, I've lived by this one premise. It takes one to know one. Whether it's good or bad, you know, it takes one to know one. And if one is a truly righteous person and they examine the evidence of the life of Jesus Christ, they can't help but to be compelled that this was a righteous man. Like the guard said at the crucifixion when he died. And there's an earthquake and rumblings and thunder and people are rising up out of the grave, many of them, walking through the city. Surely this was the Son of God. Never had a criminal been given so much worry after his execution. They had to guard him. Because this deceiver, that's what they call him, right? This deceiver said, if we kill him in three days, he'll raise himself back up again. Which is another interesting point. That they understood what Jesus meant and the disciples did not. They were confused about this, even after his death. But the Pharisees said, put a guard. We want a guard, a Roman guard, not temple guards. We want a Roman guard. Again, the penalty to desert your post, fall asleep at your post. It was not like I shared with you last week of the temple guards where they would light their clothes on fire if they fell asleep. It was death. A Roman guard is not going to fall asleep. Hardened soldiers, battle-hardened soldiers are not going to fall asleep. Something caused them to flee. And we know the resurrection of Christ and the angelic visitation and the moving of the stone and on and on caused them such fright. that God come in the flesh, now transfigured, right before their eyes. Brought him to this place. Now, one of the things that we look at when we see that Jesus' name is above all names is the fact that he fulfilled prophecy. How many? Well, we've been through this before. But a minimum of 300. 
Alfred Edersheim, the Jewish convert to Christianity and a great Christian scholar who happened to be a Jew, said, no, there was 456 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. 456. And since we've been through these statistics and probability before, even though some of you haven't heard them, I would strongly suggest you read the work of Peter Stoner, Dr. Peter Stoner. He was a mathematician, Christian. He did a great study in a book called Science Speaks. You can read it online for free. Read through his explanation of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies. Just eight. Astronomical. Mathematical. And he, by the way, his work was peer-reviewed by other mathematicians. Astronomical that any man could fulfill eight ancient prophecies by mere chance. But if we rise up to Alfred Edersheim 456 or just 300, we come up with numbers so large that it's beyond human comprehension, anybody's comprehension, to believe that this could have happened by chance. If we take 48 prophecies of at least 300 predicted in the Bible about the Messiah, where he would be born and his death and his life and his burial, and his, all these things, we come up with 48 prophecies. And let me just read this to you. Because we have another legal scholar, I'll call him a legal scholar, trained at University of Michigan, I believe it was. We also went to Yale. And he was a writer for the Chicago Tribune for many years, but he was an atheist. So one day he decided to say, put this to bed, and he's going to prove that the Bible is wrong, and he gets caught up with the evidence, and he writes an entire work from which, remember, he's a legal scholar, he was one of the editors of the Chicago Tribune, and he's still alive today, preaching the gospel, and the case for Christianity. And he says this, I had studied the same statistical analysis by mathematician Peter W. Stoner when I was investigating the messianic prophecies for myself. Stoner also computed that the probability of fulfilling just 48 prophecies was one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. When I did my math, I said, well, Lee, you only gave 144 zeros, one in 10 to the 144th power. Stoner actually said it was one chance in 10 to the 157th power. Even if I had my whiteboard here and I got here before you did to write all those zeros, I'm not sure the whiteboard, unless I wrote them very small, would be able to contain all those zeros in 48 prophecies or just 48 prophecies. But we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds so that the ignoble death and the surprising birth and things in between are washed away by the evidence of fulfilled prophecies that were written over many, many long centuries before Jesus was born. For those who say he was a con artist, we obviously understand there's things he could never control. He couldn't control the city he was born in any more than he could control the city that he was raised in, any more than he could manipulate the tribe he came from, the tribe of Judah, and his lineage of David and so on. He couldn't control these things. Yet the probability, if we just took those alone of what we know that Jesus could not control, would again be an astronomical number. You see, we're not without evidence. We do, I have at times gone through this with people, then just have to say that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know. When they are rejecting evidence. You see, Frank Morrison and Erwin Linton and Simon Greenleaf, especially Simon Greenleaf, very imposing figure. Look him up in American history. Chief Justice Story and all these people. Lawyers looking for ways to disprove the Bible because they were honest men just get caught up with the evidence is overwhelming. And that's how we know that it wasn't an illegitimate birth. 
But God sent his spirit into a woman. And so what is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, is of God himself. And then all these unique things that obviously we don't have time to go through today begin to unfold in the life of Jesus. And so the title of this message is Jesus, name above all names. Or from the scripture I read to you, there is no other name given to men under heaven whereby we must be saved. There is no other way. There is no other name. There is no other religion. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so many, many people who try to disprove the Bible, if you're honest, they come out with a different verdict, the same that we have. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me just give you this very, very quickly. If you take one in 10 to the 157th power, so picture 10 followed by 157 zeros, you come up with this, and I got this from a separate secular website. It's more than the number of cubic centimeters or subatomic particles, like electrons and neutrinos, in the observable universe. So if we can even, as the saying goes, wrap our minds around how big is the universe, this number exceeds that on the level of electrons, which we can't see. The number is so big of it having the probability with 48. But we have much, much more than 48 prophecies fulfilled in the life of this man called Jesus from the city of Nazareth, where he grew up. King of kings and Lord of lords. I've given this message a couple of times, but I found it kind of unique, astonishing in the sense when I talked about if Jesus had never been born. Because I was watching, as some of you may, during the Christmas season, It's a Wonderful Life. And it's a very good story. It has a great didactic lesson in it of how our lives affect other people, for better or worse. In any case, I did not know that Dr. James Kennedy, who's now also passed away, wrote a book on it with the same title. I assumed he got it from me, but maybe not. And he got it from the same place, the same idea. I said, well, that's kind of unique. Just give you the chapters from the book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born?, This is now going to the identity, the conduct, and character of this man, Jesus. This chapter is about Christ and civilization, how it's changed civilization. That he's in the image of God, of his compassion and mercy. Wow, there's no matching that. By the way, Jesus healed the sick not to prove he was God. Remember, if he wanted to prove he was God, he's more, more creative ways than just going around touching people. He healed the sick because he loves the sick. And he still loves the sick. And he hasn't changed. Education. So much of it comes out of the efforts of Christian people, the life of Christ. Government of the people, for the people, by the people. We should recognize that one. So much of what we have in America today is directly associated with the life of Christ. Freedom for all in chapter 7. Thinking God's thoughts after him. Free enterprise and the work ethic coming from Jesus. Jesus was not a socialist. Oh, yeah, he made bread for people at one occasion there, and he made some fish multiply. But then when they came back and said, hey, wow, when's the next free meal? He said, you know what? You are coming after me for the wrong reason. He says, now, you go get your own fish and seek from the bread that comes from heaven. (laughs) Thinking God's thoughts, another chapter, free enterprise. I mentioned that. The beauty of sexuality. (laughs) I got to say this real quick. I remember a counselor was talking, talking about the beauty of sexuality. He suggested that when you were having sex with your wife or your husband, that you pictured Jesus standing over the bed watching you. And I said, I don't know, I think so, no. (laughs) That's taking the doctrine a bit too far. No, no, no. 
I was raised Catholic. I, no, 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 I ain't no, not going there. But when you think about it, it's designed to be beautiful, not perverted, as we've had throughout history. Healing the sick and civilizing the uncivilized and so on. Amazing grace. God became a man. I've quoted to you before. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's the correct translation from the Greek. Not like Jehovah's Witness and others have say. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was a God. Because the Greek definite article, ha, is used before lagos. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was the God. Which we leave out the. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. As unique as his birth and peculiar as his birth may be, it was the design of God to bring the Savior of the world, in a manner of speaking, to a level where we could identify with him and he could identify with us. Even if you look at Jesus' genealogy, A, it's not all Jewish, and B, you have a couple of adulterers in there. And we don't expect God to come in that way based on his holiness. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. This same Jesus that I've been talking about made the worlds. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Jeremiah 10, verse 11. Thus shall ye say unto them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He that hath made the earth by his power, he hath established the world by his wisdom. And hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And that's, again, back in Hebrews. And push them all together. Who did this? Who made the heavens and the earth? Jesus. In this mystery, again, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, being three but one, a triune being. And then we have the power of sin. And I just want to give this to you quickly. We must understand the power of sin. I've said this to you before, and I'll say it again now. The closer you walk with Jesus, the more sin you're going to see in your own life. And then when you talk and speak and reach out to others, you're going to have much more compassion. Because you're going to see yourself in reality. And there won't be any condescension. There won't be any pharisaical mindset. I pray all day. Pharisees prayed all day. I tithe. Pharisees tithe. Well, you know, and the scribes wrote the scriptures. You know, transcribed them. And Jesus saved his most excoriating comments for those very same people that said they knew him. But listen, John says to us, the Holy Spirit says to us, he that loveth not. You don't know God. What are you telling me? I don't know God. I know the Bible better than you. I've heard that one too. Many people know the Bible better than me. But I know one thing. Love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love one another. It's the greatest good. And everything in the Bible hangs on those two commandments. I know that much. He that loveth not knoweth not God. The power of sin. God says here in Genesis chapter 2 that they weren't to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man did. And sin fell upon all of humanity. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. You see how God doesn't lump us all together? You do wrong, you are judged for the wrong that you did. And just very quickly too, when it comes to sin, we are all prone to blame somebody else. Nature versus nurture. I had a bad father, but you don't have a bad father now. 
And in the Garden of Eden, they did not have a bad father. They did not have a father who didn't show up, who was on drugs or whatever. They had the perfect situation, and they still rebelled against God. That's in us. That's what Christ came to redeem us from. Go and sin no more. So let me just finish today with the greatest gift of all. John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but... He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The greatest gift of all that you and I could ever receive was the gift of eternal life. And I submit this to you all the time. You have problems, but there's a stability And I think to myself, what has kept me stable? I've been rocked to and fro by all kinds of things. It's this Bible. It's this word. The power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Christmas tree that had no lights. I had no lights when I met Jesus. And he touched me. And all the joy that floods my soul. He touched me and made me whole. Decorated me in a manner of speaking with salvation. For beauty and for glory. That we can shine in the darkness of this world. Only those that truly know him can actually shine. Now you can do what the scribes did, the Pharisees did, the lawyers, and all the scripture verses. But if it's not being shown in your conduct, and especially if you're not appreciating the love of God going through you to other people, I would take a second look, as the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians, see if you're in the faith. Because this is one of the greatest evidences. The intellect, of course, is engorged with a lot of knowledge. But the life that we now live, the Holy Spirit compelling us to have compassion on people. We won't save everybody, but still we know, even as Jesus knows, that he was touched in all points like we were in temptations and so forth without sin. When we go to Jesus and we talk to him, again, God come in the flesh, he understands. Depression? He was depressed. Anxious? I wouldn't go so far with the anxiety, but he knows what it's like. Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he became a sin offering. And I'm telling you, if humility is not growing in your life, it is very doubtful you have yet to meet Jesus. It is very doubtful if you really know the power of your sin. Now, it's easy to find my sin. That's easy. I'm a walking target. But people skulking around in the darkness taking shots at my sin better turn on the light and take a good long look at themselves. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why when we get together like this and we don't get along. You you said we always get along. And I'm saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. (laughs) I've read your texts, your emails, and I listen to your phone calls and your conversations. No, you don't. So we come together and when you truly know God, you have compassion. Oh, naturally, you're right and they're wrong. I get that. But if you start to think about it a little bit differently, you say, well, maybe, you know, just maybe you're a little bit wrong. Maybe. That's how we know we know Christ because we just sense we know it. 
Go through the Ten Commandments and see how many of you violated. And we realize the death penalty. And we come to Christ. And we're saved by his mercy. Not that we deserve it. Who walks up to God and says, I deserve your forgiveness. Give it to me. Mm, not likely. But how do we come to Jesus? Like Thomas, we fall down, my Lord and my God. As he quickens our conscience and he makes it alive. We feel the burden of sin. But like Pilgrim in John Bunyan's book, when we come to the cross, it rolls off our back by the mercy of God. But this, this young babe that came in, judged to be the son of Penthera, of an adulterous woman that we know to be a virgin, touched by the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, who dies between criminals as a criminal, only based on who he said he was. Art thou the Christ? What's the accusation up above him? Didn't say thief, murderer, adulterer, none of those things. Nothing. King of the Jews. That was his accusation. Who is the king of the Jews? It's Jehovah. It's God. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. That with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress and fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and on his vesture, and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. God, we bless you today, and we praise you. The uniqueness of your life, the uniqueness of your birth, the uniqueness of your death. We didn't talk about the resurrection or the ascension or anything else. The fulfilling of prophecies. No, not probable, impossible. Search the scriptures, you said, Jesus. For in them you think you have eternal life, but they are what do testify of me. And we know that, God. And we know that. And in this crazy world we live in, we don't have to fear, nor do we have to be nervous, nor do we have to be anything else. Depressed. Because our hope is that blessed hope of the appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Name that many use as a pejorative. Curse word for frustration, anger. But we use it as worship. Jesus. Name above all names. Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The Prince of Peace. And we see the signs, Lord. We see the signs of the approaching day when this prophecy yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, surely Dr. Francis had it correct. Of all the armies that ever marched, the parliaments that ever sat, Congress, kings, tribunals, of all these things put together, did not have the impact on this world as that one solitary life. And we bless you. And we praise you. How we give you the glory and the honor, O oh God. Hallelujah. Now, I just ask you this question, but do you really know him? Some of you know the scriptures. A lot of people know Bible verses. Do you know him? Jesus was called the friend of sinners. So many religions, or at least some, don't call sinners friends, but people that need to be killed. And Jesus comes and sits with them 
Jesus comes and sits with us. He says, I'm your friend. I'm your Savior. I'm your Lord. Today, can you honestly say, I know him. I know him. He is our rock. The rock of our salvation. The scriptures say, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Since you're probably going to know this in eternity anyway, I'll get it out of the way. So many mornings I get up in this crazy time that we live in. And maybe partially because I've lost part of my mind. And I put on some worship music. You know, I usually have upbeat stuff, stuff made for drummers. And I just dance. Now, I don't dance ordinarily, and I wasn't a disco guy back in the 70s, but I know my Savior. Now, I'm not going to dance next week, so don't ask me. But when I'm alone... Oh, I'm glad nobody's videotaping. Because there's an expression of joy inside me that I know what I've already come through. And God has brought me through. And I'm assured that whatever I'm facing in the future, which is not going to be fun, I don't think. He's going to bring me through that. And he that began a good work in me and in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Father, we bless you again. You're great, and you're greatly to be praised. We have a lot of things going on. People sick, people dying. People afraid, people depressed. We pray for them, Lord. Of course, we can't pray for the dead, but we pray for them. Let your power be made manifest in the earth once again. Even as we see the evidence of your spirit working throughout the world. As people are coming to Christ by the millions. Oh, Father, we bless your name and we praise your name. And that we should count everything as dung. That we may know you and the power of your resurrection. Because even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. And we give you all the glory and we give you all the honor. Reminding ourselves again of the two greatest commandments in all the Bible. Love you, all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And then to love one another. And by this shall all men know we're truly your disciples. Bless everyone on their way home. Keep them safe. Give them a great day on this Lord's Day. And I ask you and we ask you that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.